let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Thursday evening, reflecting into this area of apologetics. As I do every Thursday, I have Rob Sheridan with me. Good to have you, Rob. Good to be here, Joe. Rob, tonight we are part two of a study on Mary, an apologetic study on Mary. Last week we looked at where Mary was in the New Testament. This week, we will do the same, but we're going to get back into some of the Old Testament imagery. But before we get there, I thought we could uh, both review last week and then take up this topic in a little more detail of typology, uh, where, where I get a lot of questions. So certainly it would behoove us to go there tonight. In so far as last week was concerned, Rob... In looking at Mary in the New Testament, our emphasis was looking at where Mary is in Scripture. You know, we we often get the question, well, we don't really see Mary a whole lot in Scripture. You know, when you take a closer look, it's not so much how much you see, but in fact, where you see. Of course, there she is in the Annunciation, the announcement of uh, the coming of the Messiah. And then where do you see her after that? Well, the birth of our Lord. So those are two pretty important points. And then there she is, the wedding feast at Cana, our Lord's first miracle, interceding on behalf of the people. And there you have that uh, that wonderful uh, verse that we talked about last week, Rob, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And that's her role. We go to Mary, and what does she say? Do whatever he tells you. Why is that important? Well, Rob, those are her last words recorded in sacred scripture. So we talked a little bit about the wedding feast at Cana, and then we kind of jumped forward to Calvary. You know, you, you move from the announcement, the birth, his first miracle, to his death. And uh, why is that significant? You know, one of the things that Dr. Hahn was reflecting upon, I went back to his read, and uh, we've reflected a little bit on this, is the significance of his death. It is to remember that our Lord died of, of asphyxiation. You know, crucifixion is a slow death by intermittent suffocation, and it was very hard for him to speak. Every word cost him his life's breath and caused him immense pain. So we can be sure that he made every word count. And of course, as we noted, among the few pronouncements he made from the cross was, Woman, behold your son, turning to John, saying, Behold your mother. We should attend very carefully to this point because it it was our Lord's final instruction before his death. It was, in a sense, his last will and testament. And as we reflected last week, Rob, uh, this is uh, a universal text. This is how John writes. So he wishes for us to see that we've been given this spiritual mother. The church 
is a family of God. We spoke a few weeks ago about the saints. These are siblings in Christ who have shown us what it means to be the best version of ourselves in Christ. As we had begun to talk about Mary last week, certainly we move from our brothers and sisters in Christ to our mother, our spiritual mother. Uh, and of course, you know, there she was at the birth of the church, you know, in Pentecost, Acts 1.14 through the early verses of chapter 2. She's in the middle of the room, bringing down the presence of uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you were to go into uh, Rome, you see some wonderful pieces of art from the earliest days of Christianity of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the middle of this upper room, her hands up and the fire of the Holy Spirit coming down. And of course, it was just always understood in, in early Christianity that this is what the mother did. She interceded on behalf of the new kingdom of God, and she brings down the presence of God just like she did in the Annunciation. And, and how fitting is it that both times the Holy Spirit descends upon Mary, there is a birth. Mm. To be to be coming first the birth of Jesus, the second with in the upper room with the apostles the birth of his bride the church. How fitting is that? Our Lord is a God of detail, you know, and I love that. And in light of that, Rob, as I noted in the opening, we wanted to spend some time talking about typology because it is in this principle that we can appreciate. God's detail. By the way, when, when we use the word principle, what do we mean? You know, that is a word in Latin that means origin or first. So a principle is, is something that belongs on the forefront. Applying the word principle to then scripture, what we are made to see is that we have principles that allow us to better understand the fullness of the meaning of the text. And one of those principles is typology. So, what is typology? Well, as you know, I like to break down words. So typology, the study of types, type. If you're to go into Romans 5, this is the first time that we see the word used, Rob. The Greek is typos. It literally means figure, example, or pattern. And in general, a type is an impression or a stamp made when an instrument strikes an object and resembles that instrument. So as I think I noted a few months ago, Rob, the image that I like a lot is, is that of a typewriter. I know for, uh, for myself, I think I'm dating myself a little bit because we don't see typewriters anymore, but I think collectively our listening audience knows what a typewriter is. What happens when you push a key? It strikes a canvas and it leaves an impression of what kind of instrument was striking the canvas. In the case of a typewriter, of course, a letter or some sort of figure. This is what God does in salvation history. We see figures like Abraham, Moses, and David on the, the stage of salvation history, and they leave an impression upon the canvas of sacred scripture that resembles the one who is to come. So when we study typology, we are studying how persons, places, and events prefigure or anticipate the person of Jesus Christ. And this kind of principle, this kind of key that unlocks the Christian mystery has to be at the center. Why, Rob? Because it allows us to better read Scripture. We 
get a better sense of how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. It allows us to see the wonderful, intelligible coordination that is the seamlessness of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas, Jesus Christ lays hidden in shadowy symbols in the Old Testament. Why? Because our God is a God of detail, and he wants us to see the wonderful plan that he had in store for us from the very beginning. This is how Jesus interprets. You know, if someone were to say to us, Rob, well, that's how you interpret, but that's not how I interpret. Well, if we were to model Christ in all that we do, this is how Jesus interprets the scriptures, right? In John 5, uh, verses 39 and following, you search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. Well, scriptures at the time of Christ wasn't the New Testament. We've already talked about that a great deal. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. They bear witness to who? Yes, Jesus Christ. All of these great figures in the Old Testament point to Christ. Mark Twain, who says, uh, no, history never repeats itself, but it has a rhyme scheme. Salvation history has a rhyme scheme. And it is, again, the person of Jesus Christ that unlocks that rhyme scheme, that helps uh, us make sense of that rhyme scheme, Rob. Something else as I'm talking about this that I'm being made to remember. The word history itself, history in Latin, literally means to weave a pattern. What does typology mean? Figure, example, pattern. If we're going to understand the story, Rob, of uh, salvation history, our story, what are we going to have to do? Apply typology to history itself. So it is, we can properly say, typology that unlocks history <laughs> in many ways, especially when you start getting into uh, biblical theology. When we, when we talk about typology, when we, when we talk about these patterns, we got to remember, like you said, God's a God of the details, but he's, he's also a master artist and he's a master storyteller. Amen. Scripture, <laughs> while, while written by many different human authors, has God as its final author, communicates what he wants it to communicate. And if we, if we look at our imperfect storytelling, our, our imperfect artwork, particularly the 20th century, we, we can see our, our own versions of typology. I mean, you look at the at the Star Wars movies, and most everyone's seen the originals from 77. Some people have seen the prequels. They don't like them that much, but when we watch the prequels, we start to see these typological patterns happen in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Luke is a new type of Anakin. They have these very similar journeys, very similar things happen. We apply typology in our politics, mm -hmm. the, the last couple elections, right. the, the, the president has been has been given as this type of new Lincoln. He's he's been presented as this type of of savior. Some have even presented him as a type of Christ. Yeah, we do typology in our own lives. Yeah, watch a watch a watch a Superman movie, and you're you're looking at a type of Moses and Christ. I mean, Superman rocketed from his planet by his by his parents. To mm -hmm. save another world, I mean, that's that's Moses, that's Jesus right there. Yeah, we, we typology is everywhere. But if we don't ponder it, if we don't contemplate it, we will miss it. Mm -hmm. You can look up at the sky and you can see just a bunch of tiny little bright lights. But when you start to contemplate, then you see those patterns. You see the dipper. You see the bear. 
this, this, this pattern recognition, it's ingrained in us. It's, it's part of our evolution. Wouldn't God speak to us in that way? Wouldn't he speak to us in his words, in his scriptures? Yeah, you, you speak to it well there, Rob. When you go to uh, the catechism, what you find is how typology is, is within this allegorical sense. And this is what we're talking about. What is allegory? Allegory is the description of one thing under the image of another. And, and this is what's going on. I mean, the widely popular Lord of the Rings. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the typology there. We could, we could be here for the next two hours, Rob, talking about, you know, that. And, or, um, you know, uh, Chronicles of, of Narnia. These stories were typological stories by intention from C.S. Lewis and, and, and Tolkien. Uh, so, yeah, this is, this is a, a, rich, a rich topic. Rob, I want to ask you... And, and just, I, I want to draw this out a little more as we're talking. You're an artist, and, and as you're talking to, speaking to typology and, and pattern, what about art itself? You sit down at a canvas, and you begin to draw. When creating art, uh, for me, a lot of it's very instinctual. But there is this this conscious compositional process where... I bring things together in a way that would most make sense to the viewer mm-hmm. and most pleasing to the eye. When you when you communicate visually, you're you're telling a story, and so I want to make sure that I'm communicating in a, in a language that's understood. I'm going to make sure that that these are patterns that people mm. are going to recognize. Now, you can definitely be an artist and pay no attention to pattern. You can be a Jackson Pollock, and you yeah. can <laughs> splatter paint all all over the the canvas, but everyone's going to come away with a different meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God doesn't want you to come away with different meanings from his word. Yeah. I, I, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There, yeah. the, there's one way, there's one truth, there's yeah. one life. When I communicate my art, I, I pretty much want one interpretation. And so I'm going to do it in a way that my audience understands. And and like you said, all art is, is really pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. I mean, we recognize these people and these characters set up in a per- certain way. We recognize the patterns in that. You go back before the Renaissance, you're going to see a different way of communicating, but they still use these similar patterns so that the people of the age know what's being communicated. Sure. <clears throat> you talked earlier about contemplation and, and being able to, to see it for what it is. When we really bring what we're talking about to Scripture, this is what it's about. I mean, if you were to be so close to a painting and trying to distinguish its color and and its picture and its patterns, are we going to be able to do that? No. We have to be able to draw back, and the more we draw back, we are able to see the picture for what it is. The patterns, the shapes, the forms, the colors— begin to come into view, and then we can make sense of the whole picture. And when we study Scripture, this is what typology is about. When we do it right, we take a step back and we say, okay, how can I see how God has worked in salvation history better? How can I better read his patterns? You you said uh, God is, is the great author of scripture and amen. He is the first storyteller and he's trying to communicate to us the great story of salvation history. And so, yeah, we have to roll up our sleeves a little bit, work in the tall grass and begin to see the need 
to appreciate the importance of reading the old and new in light of each other so that we can better appreciate what Christ came to establish in the kingdom of God. So with that, Rob, what I want to do is uh, segue a little bit into what I had talked about in the beginning, a reading of, of uh, Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. Now, what does that mean? When you hear Ark of the Covenant, what do you think? Well, maybe we think of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? <laughs> but when you think Ark of the Covenant, what was in the Ark of the Old Covenant? Uh, maybe that's what we think about, what the, uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, Aaron's rod, uh, the manna, uh, those were the things, those were the, uh, the sacred things were, were that were in the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant held the presence of God. So now, what am I talking about then when I say Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant? That seems like an over-the-top thing to say, Rob, maybe for some of our listeners, but well, let's think about this for a second. If the Ark of the Old Covenant simply held the presence of God, then if Mary is the mother of God, she is an ark. She is a type, right, <laughs> of the old ark, yet something uh, much more real than just the ark of the Old Testament, uh, of the Old Covenant. So with that, I want to just make a few more points that will lead us into our, our typological study of uh, Mary and the Old Testament. And, uh, and, and that is, uh, you know, Luke's Gospel tells us more about the mother of Jesus than any other book in the New Testament. Most of this information is packed, Rob, in the first two chapters. You know, we think, well, Mary's just in the first few chapters. What's the big deal? Well, like I say, you know, it, Mary's packed in there. Um, and certainly, the deeper we delve into Luke's narrative, the more we can appreciate the way in which Luke tells us the story of Mary. One example can be found in the story of the visitation. On one level, the visitation tells of a joyous encounter between two expectant mothers. On another, it recalls a memorable story told in the Old Testament about the Ark of the Covenant. By alluding to this story, Luke wishes to expand the vision of the careful reader considerably. Or Rob, for you and I, our listener, right? Unless our listeners do have, our, uh, do have their scriptures out there. Uh, so for he leads us to see Mary as the Ark of God's new covenant and implies that the Ark of the old covenant merely prefigures a more wonderful Ark to come the mother of the divine Messiah. So, Rob, I thought what we can do now is go to some specific verses in the Old Testament, Second uh, Samuel 6, verses 2 to 17, and then I will read uh, the visitation, Luke 1, verses 39 to 56. And we are going to do this so that for our listeners, we can get a better, a better stronghold and what we are talking about when we speak to typology. And then now from that, we'll reflect a little bit. Second Samuel. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baali Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, 
which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres, harps and tambourines, and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hands to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there, because he put forth his hand to the ark, and he died there besides the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken forth upon Uzzah, and that place is called perez to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obedadom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obedadom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obedadom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Adam and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Adam to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was belted with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Amen. Thanks for that reading, Rob. And while that reading is fresh in our listeners' minds and hearts here, I'll just jump right into the visitation. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a city of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his posterity forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned 
to her home. As we read those texts, Rob, uh, and maybe our listeners heard them as well, there is some rich, rich typology. Uh, Things just kind of jump out at you. It starts, Rob, with the phrase, arose and went, right? When Luke tells us that Mary arose and went into the Judean hill country to visit her kinswoman there in chapter 1, verse 39, he reminds us of how David arose and went into the same region centuries earlier to, the, to retrieve the ark in 2 Samuel 6, 2. And what do we see upon Mary's arise, arrival? But Elizabeth being struck by the same sense of awe and unworthiness before Mary that David felt be, that David felt standing before the Ark of the Covenant. And we see the parallels continue as the joy surrounding this great encounter cause, causes the infant John to leap with excitement, much as David danced with excitement before the Ark. What beautiful imagery. And finally, you know, Luke adds that Mary stayed in the house of Zechariah for three months. Of course, recalling how the Ark of Covenant was temporarily stationed in the house of Obededom for a waiting period of three months there in 2 Samuel 6, verse 11. Taken together, Rob, these parallels show us that Mary assumes a role in salvation history that was once played by the Ark of the Covenant. Like this golden chest, Mary is a sacred vessel where the Lord's presence dwells intimately with his people. Oh, I mean, Joe, we could, we could unpack this for days. Um, but what's, what's striking to me when we, when we look at Mary as the Ark of the Covenant um, is how the other Marian doctrines come into place after that, mm. when we, when, especially when we talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary. Because I, we, we see how Yuza tries to just steady the ark from falling because the oxen die and God just strikes them dead. Yeah. And that brings me back to Raiders of the Lost Ark with that beautiful image of the ark locked in the Nazi box with the swastika being burned oh, off yeah. of it and the rat the, rat the rats dies. on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, it just shows how much God say, hates sin, how he doesn't want it to mm. defile his home, his his. His, where his presence is held, how much more the home that he had, the womb of Mary, how much more would he not want that defiled? How much pure would he need that to be inside and out? The ark was gold inside and out. Mary had to be golden inside and out. She had to be free from sin. She had to be perpetually a virgin. When we look at her as the new ark of the covenant, bam, that makes sense. Yeah. Amen, Rob. Amen. Let us close in prayer. Because we'll close in prayer. Okay. Let us close in prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen, and God bless you.
You've been listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe at J-H-O-L-L-J-M-J at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholcraft.org or call KKXX during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to the Seeds of Truth on KKXX.